Welcome to Coffee Up by Market Lane Coffee, a podcast for our growing coffee community of like-minded businesses who wish to serve delicious, sustainable, and ethically sourced coffees. My name is Christian. In this series, we'll be covering the countries of origin from where we source our coffees. Our goal in every country is to build long-standing and equitable relationships with dedicated coffee producers who share our values and obsessions with quality. Our coffee buying team from both Market Lane and Melbourne Coffee Merchants laid the foundations in establishing and maintaining these relationships. In this episode, Tyson catches up with Jenny to talk about Rwanda. Jenny is one of Market Lane's directors and has been purchasing coffee from Rwanda for years now. Together, they discussed Jenny's memories of Rwanda, covered the meticulous work our partners put into producing coffee, and ultimately, what she loves about the people and the coffee there. A quick content warning, as this episode does touch on the subject of the 1994 Rwandan genocide. So, Jenny, when did you first visit Rwanda? I had my first trip to Rwanda in 2013. I joined Fleur for one of our buying trips. After that, I went for five consecutive years to visit just after the harvest, taste the recently harvested coffees and make choices for what coffees we would buy for Market Lane. And uh, what are some of your fondest memories from your many trips to Rwanda? There's a lot of uh, really beautiful visual memories I have. I remember the first time flying over the country and looking down out of the plane and seeing the most beautiful, rich soil. Mm. So these kind of small little patchwork bits of land that were being propagated with bright red clay soil. Also driving through the hills in the north and the south and seeing those those same kind of patches of land up close, seeing um, how every bit of soil and land was being used to produce food and coffee. And also one of the standout experiences, the people which yeah. we're still in close contact with <laughs> after um, about 12 seasons. So that was really, really special. Some very generous, really caring people who invest a lot in what they're doing, mm-hmm. um, both for their families and for their country. Yeah. And also just who care a lot about specialty coffee and the industry mm. and the consumers who end up drinking and loving Rwandan coffee. You mentioned that we've been purchasing coffee from some of the same people for 12 seasons now. Would that mean that some of the very first coffees that Market Lane showcased would have been from Rwanda? Yes. Um, our very, very first shipment had some coffee from Dukundakawa. And then the second year we brought, we also brought in coffee from Buff Coffee, which is based in the south. Oh, cool. And yeah, it's, it's really important, I think, to mention that we've started bringing in coffee then, but it's also been every single year consecutively since then. So trying to manage and maintain the relationship consistently year after year is um, been really important to us and has had incredible benefits. Mm, yeah, absolutely beneficial for us. We get these delicious coffees that we can drink and share, <laughs> but it's also really beneficial to the people that we're buying the coffee from, isn't it? 100%. I mean, buying coffee is so much about building trust and relationships. And I think the longer we've worked with the same groups of people, the more we learn how best to do business, the more we learn culturally about Rwanda and its people. It deepens the respect 
for how hard it is to produce coffee, the hard work it takes. And I mean, the friendships that I have there now mean so much to me. It, it is more than business, really. But yeah, I think in any kind of business situation, um, the more committed you are to ongoing relationships, I think the better off yeah. it usually is, <laughs> at least from my experience. So given that Rwandan coffees have become quite a staple on Market Lane's menu over the years, I'm sure that most people listening to this podcast have tried at least one or two Rwandan coffees. But let's say if you're working a shift in one of the shops and a customer comes up to you who has never tried a Rwandan coffee before, how do you describe what a great Rwandan coffee tastes like? I think um, great Rwandan coffees have really sweet, satisfying flavors like brown sugar, roasted nuts, um, but really exceptional Rwandan coffees that you know that we get and we taste year on year also have other beautiful lighter notes and fruit notes. So a lot of the times we, we can taste like cranberry or raisin, dates, things like that that are really sweet, but even more so things that are lighter and zestier like orange, um, lemon blossom, and even some florals. I love when I taste things like maybe vanilla or caramel, brown sugar, yeah, I think they're incredibly satisfying, really drinkable coffees that have a complexity to them as well. So we know that Rwanda is quite a small country, but what are some of the different regions throughout Rwanda that we buy coffee from? Predominantly, we buy coffee from the north and the south. Um, we do um, also have relationships in the west that we've purchased from as well. In the north, we work with Tukundakawa Cooperative. The north is known as a farming community traditionally. There's really, really long-standing generations of farming families up there. Also, really amazing high elevation volcanic soils. Um, in the south, we work really closely with Buff Cafe, also really high elevations, quite rugged terrain, beautiful soil and lots of elevation to produce amazing coffees. In the west, it's close to Lake Kivu and also volcanic region, so it's a bit more wet. Beautiful coffees come from there as well, just distinct because of that kind of lake effect. Uh, yeah, like I said, Lake Kivu's there and it's a really big lake and really changes and has its own weather dynamic there. Are there any taste or flavour characteristics that may differentiate coffees from the north as compared to coffees from the south? Um, yeah, I think it's not a hard rule, but we tend to find the coffees from Dukundakawa in the north have quite a lot of those kind of lifted citrus notes. You might have lemon, orange, apricot flavours, um, and sometimes some, some beautiful kind of florals as well. In the south, tend to have a little bit sometimes richer flavours, so cocoa, black tea, raisin and date. It's a little bit richer. In the wake of Rwanda's horrific genocide, how was it that Rwandans came to choose coffee as a way to revitalise their economy? That's a great question, Tyson. And in learning and trying to understand Rwandan coffee, it is important to talk about this moment in Rwandan's history. It's also really difficult to try to sum up and give context to in a few sentences in a podcast. But it is important to consider how the Rwandan genocide did affect coffee production because it had a huge effect it's helpful to think about potentially coffee before the genocide and coffee after. Before the genocide, Rwandan coffee production was tied to colonialism. Coffee was produced commercially as a cash crop with little interest in quality. The genocide, which happened in Rwanda in 1994, over around 100 days where nearly a million people were killed, was devastating. It was devastating for everyone 
after the genocide, uh, there was a group that came to Rwanda USAID to help identify what agricultural products would suit the redevelopment of the country. A lot of things were tried. I know that at one point they were testing and talking a lot about chili peppers as being an option that worked well and suited the climate. After a lot of research, particularly done by one well-known man now in coffee named Tim Schilling, um, who's an agronomist, he helped identify specialty coffee as a really great opportunity to potentially regenerate the economy, which we know coffee has done an amazing job there. There was coffee growing in Rwanda previously. Most of it was commercial. So the first Focus on specialty meant that potentially, you know, this cash crop could really change people's lives really quickly. Mm -hmm. So they focused on specialty coffee and the first kind of thing to help build that up was building washing stations, finding the infrastructure that, you know, people and groups of people like cooperatives needed to actually produce the coffee. So given this significant investment and the benefits that lie therein, Is it fair to say that the majority of coffee throughout Rwanda is processed using the washed processing method? And are there any particular varieties that we're probably more likely to come across? Yeah, definitely. Um, Coffee coming from Rwanda is almost entirely washed red bourbon that's dried on raised beds. That said, there are a lot of experiments, particularly from the really creative people that we work with. We do get to to taste other processing, um, experimental processing and um, trials with other varieties. So thankfully, given the quality of coffee that we're serving, defects are something that we don't really come across all that often. But there is one that's quite distinct, and it's very specific to Rwanda and some neighbouring countries, and that is the potato defect. Jenny, what can you tell us about this mysterious coffee defect? Yeah, so it's really, it's, it's helpful and important to talk about this. The, the potato defect is a defect that has been found in coffees from the region, so like Tanzania, Congo, Burundi, and Rwanda, mostly. What it is, it's when a cherry may have been eaten by a bug. You've got a little hole in the cherry that gives kind of a root or a way in for a spore to find its way to the bean itself. That spore can affect the coffee bean, And what's really interesting and really different about this defect is that it's undetectable and unrecognizable until that coffee has been roasted and then ground. So we don't actually know if a bean's been infected until we've (laughs) roasted that coffee and ground it to smell something that defines the potato defect. So... What, what you experience when you, when you experience a potato defect is one single bean can infect the entire bag and it smells a lot like potato skins. <laughs> so if you've ever been over the sink peeling potato after potato for mashed potatoes or something yeah. like that, you kind of know it's kind of a wet, earthy smell. Yeah, I mean, it's quite distinct. I mean, when you encounter it, you, you definitely notice it. Yeah, and I think in the context of agriculture and potatoes, it's not that offensive. But I think what's really different with coffee is that we expect things to be sweet and, um, you know, we expect florals and fruits and things like that. So it's a real surprise to have something that smells earthy. Mm. And really in the cup, what you experience is, is a cup of coffee that's really lacking sweetness. So you just don't have the same kind of sugar that you would. Mm. So that said, it is something that exists, but it's absolutely something that can be worked around and that it's worth learning about it, educating about it so that we're still supporting an amazing country that produces exceptional coffee. Yeah, I mean, the coffees are incredible and it would be such a shame to not serve those coffees when I guess all you really need to do is, you know, look at the way that you prepare coffee a little bit differently and maybe adjust some workflow. 
On that note, are there any tips that you might give to people who are making coffee day to day on how they might be able to mitigate some of these issues? Yeah, I think if you experience it in the cafe from a barista level, you just throw out whatever you're working with in that moment. So if it's a, if you've ground some espresso and you smell it, throw out what you're working with, give it a good clean. I'd probably grind through a couple more rounds of espresso portions. If it's quite strong, which there can be varying strengths, you might want to take your bin out so you don't smell that waft coming out of the bin. Um, there is a, a term called the ghost potato, which <laughs> you think you maybe have ground again a potato but really maybe it's just sitting in the bin right next to you. Yeah. Um, if you've ground a bag for a customer, I would just say, you know, throw that bag out. Of course, let us know and we'll reimburse you for another bag of that coffee. It really hasn't happened very much, I'd say, in the last three years. The, mm. the um, occurrences have um, reduced dramatically. There's a lot of research going on, which I will admit I'm not across the most recent research, but we do know that the more the coffee is sorted and sorted at the cherry stage, there are reductions. So the people we work with do immense amount of sorting at all levels. Coffee being picked from the trees, it's being Mm. sorted and chosen. It comes to the washing station, it's being sorted by hand. It gets put in a water tank and floated and it gets sorted again. It gets sorted in the channels. So there really is a lot being taken out to just try to leave the very best. Mm. And we have seen much lower occurrences. Yeah, I feel like year on year we're seeing less and less instances of the potato defect come through, which is great. Yeah, and I think just ultimately, you know, it would just be a real shame to discount a country or even a whole region in Africa for the chance that this might come up. I think it's an incredible reminder that coffee is an agricultural product. Mm. It comes from somewhere far away. It's been through so many people's hands and had so much, you know, work and labor involved that it's a really special place to support and serve and talk about simply for these same reasons. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's so special. And I always really look forward to having New Rwandan coffees roll around every year. It's always an exciting time. On that note, and I guess you touched on this a little earlier, but who are some of the people that we buy coffee from in Rwanda? Oh, yeah. So we work with predominantly two really special and actually quite different organizations. Um, in the north, we've worked really closely with, like I said, Dukundakawa since we opened our doors. Dukundakawa is a, a larger cooperative. Um, I think at the moment there's just over a thousand members. And Dukundakawa means love of coffee in local Kenya Rwanda language. The members of that cooperative get a lot of support from the organization. They pay to join and there are some rules around joining. But what those farmers get in return is a lot of training. So agricultural training, access to um, materials needed to manage your trees. There might be support for school fees, access to a dairy where you might be able to produce some off-season income. There's some great programs and groups of women that are working together and also producing um, weaving outside of um, the season as well to produce more income. Yeah. Um, there's also a bank system which can help manage money for mm. producers. And Dukundakao always pays a minimum upfront for the coffees that are delivered. And then it's a second payment later in the year when those coffees have been scored and sold yeah. at higher prices. So it's, it's a very well-organized organization and group. 
Um, and we have, over the years, offered coffee from the wider group. We've offered it from all three of its washing stations. We've offered it from small farmer groups and also even individuals that are members of the cooperative. Yeah, I remember Andre Hekazimana. That was a yes. lovely coffee that we've had for a couple of years now. Yeah, and actually, I think it was my second or third year visiting Rwanda. I met Andre and that relationship really started there. He was He's one of the members that has the most land and mm. has really been the most invested in learning and developing what he does. So we got to go out and visit his home and yeah. visit his trees and hear a little bit more about the farmer's experience, which was super special. Yeah, it sounds like a really supportive community. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that's really cool about them as an organization is they invest a lot back in to the cooperative. So they, you know, it's very rare, but they have their own dry mill. Mm. So they can really manage, you know, time expectations yeah. and even choices. Like we were able to get pea berries from them because we visited the dry mill and they showed us how they can sort specifically for what we want. So yeah. one year we went, sorted all the coffee and tasted, you know, eight different screen sizes. Mm. And just, you know, as an experiment, we're really curious about what potential flavors or quality could come out of those different sizes. Yeah, cool. And I understand that we also buy a fair bit of coffee from Boof Coffee in Rwanda's Southern District. Yeah, Boof Coffee is an amazing family-owned business and quite different than the cooperative. This is owned by an individual. So Epiphany is the owner and founder of Boof Coffee. She is a Rwandan woman who was widowed after the genocide and decided she had to find a way to support her family. She got involved early on with some of the follow-up programs from that USAID program, a program called Pearl, and she started to learn about coffee processing and coffee growing. So she took it on herself to learn as much as she can, and then she ended up buying her first washing station. So um, that's the Ramira washing station that we um, know really well today and um, have been drinking coffee from. Um, but yeah, so Epiphany started that um, group on her own and since then has been working really closely with her children. Over the years, we've worked very closely with her sons, Alois, and in particular, Sam. Sam has been really generous with us and his time. Whenever we go to visit, he goes out of his way to share as much as he possibly can about his culture and the place. Yeah, he's such a wonderful human. And I really feel grateful that we're able to spend so much time with him when he visited Melbourne a couple of years ago. I remember taking him out to some cafes for coffee and getting lunch at Red Door Corner Store. Yeah, and we hosted a talk at Wildlife, which yeah. was really, really special for our team and community. Yeah, Sam's one of the most curious people that I know. He forever wants to learn and experiment. So he he's one of those people that's always trying, you know, new processing methods, um, you know, inoculating <laughs> with different yeasts. And, you know, I go there and every single time there's a new, a new project in the corner and I'm like, excuse me, what's, <laughs> what is going on over there? Um, so it's so been really cool. special to work with him. And what's quite different about them, because they're privately owned, um, they buy coffee from people in the local regions where their washing stations are. So either from individuals or from farmer groups, which is less common, but really special. So Twitters and Berry, like we mm. mentioned, is a small, about 35 coffee producing member group. And that just means that, that that group of people can come together, you know, they can make choices about focusing on quality. And then they also will see returns for a second payment when the coffee's been, you know, scored and sold. Well, Jenny, in wrapping up, look, thanks so much for your time. It's been so great to learn a bit more about Rwanda and uh, to gain some insights from your trips buying coffee there. I guess one final question for you. What is it that you think sets Rwanda apart from some of the other countries that we buy coffee from? 
Oh, that's a great question. It is It is definitely unique. A few things I would say. First of all, the land itself, it's a small country that's landlocked. That is quite distinct for moving the coffee, you know, yeah. the, the logistics around that. It's also a really young specialty coffee producing country. So if we think about the genocide in 1994... Specialty coffee really, I think, started to kick off, if I remember correctly, around the two, around two thousands. So you know, it's really a young country in its in its experience with specialty. Of course, there's generations of knowledge around farming and a huge understanding and you know appreciation for the land. But in terms of the specialty market, it's just amazing to think of how far mm. they've come so quickly. Um, in a short all, time. Yeah, in yeah. such a short time. And I think what's really cool is to say, wow, where are they going to be in another five years or ten years? or um, a little bit down the road, you know. And I guess that does kind of lead into the next thing is that I think the people there that we work with are just so special. I think that is pretty distinct. And I think we've had the chance to work with a lot of really amazing women at the tasting level. So Mm. when we go there to choose coffees, we've worked with some incredible women who were trained through the Pearl program which was, you know, a choice was made that to support specialty, you have to be able to taste and score specialty. So there was a lot of work done to train young women to learn how to taste coffee after the genocide. And Mm. a lot of those same women that were trained we work with every year. Yeah. Um, so Amirta and Epiphany are some of the women, and uh, that is very distinct and really special as well. Well, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much, and um, it's a topic I love so much. If anyone ever wants to talk more about it, please get in touch. Thanks for listening to Coffee Up. I hope you enjoyed learning a bit about Rwandan coffee. In our next and last episode on our Origin series, I'll be sitting down with Fleur to discuss Bolivian coffee. If you like what you've been listening to, you can find us on all major podcast platforms. Thanks again, and we look forward to catching up with you for a coffee soon.